This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Robert Child about a book called Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor Winners of World War II, Denied Recognition for 50 Years. How are you, Robert? I'm well. Thank you, David. I really appreciate having a chance to talk to you about this book um, and the uh, people that you talk about. And, and before we start, I just want to state their names because I think it's important to the people um, that you wrote this book about. Charles L. Thomas, sure. Vernon J. Baker, Willie James Jr., Edward Allen Carter Jr., George Watson, Reuben Riv Rivers, and John Fox. These are amazing stories. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what pr prompted you to write this book. These are the seven um, uh, black soldiers who were posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor many, many years after World War II. How'd you get into this? There was one uh, soldier that uh, was still living uh, to, to accept the medal, and that was Vernon Baker. And he attended the ceremony in 1997. But the way I got into this, writing this book, is I had done a film about 10 years ago called The Wear of Eleven about black soldiers in World War II, which aired on the National Geographic Channel. And it was um, about 11 soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge who were massacred um, by the Germans. And uh, that film became a book called The Lost Eleven that came out a few years ago. And I always felt like there was, there were so many stories untold of black service members in World War II that I wanted to to do more. So I looked around and, and the seven Medal of Honor recipients from Black Medal of Honor recipients from World War II seemed like the perfect choice because if you look online well, until this book, there's not much information on, on any of them. Several have, have some information like Sergeant Carter, um, but there just wasn't any history beyond their Medal of Honor citations. So I wanted to, my goal was to, to write their stories, to, to bring them to life. And uh, it was a lot of research, a huge effort. And uh, that was my goal, to bring these Medal of Honor recipients to life and tell their stories. Well, I, th I thought you really did a good job of that. The, each of the narratives is a, is a really, I think you, you really, you clearly have experience in writing military history because telling those stories was really well done. You, you talked about their individual lives prior to joining the army, what it was like for them, um, where they came from and how they got into, uh, the circumstance that they found themselves in, uh, when they became heroes. And, yeah. um, each one of those stories was riveting. You did keep me up at night. Um, you know, once you start reading, it's really hard to stop. And I just, you know, you, you always are struck by those kinds of stories, by the sort of automaticism of what makes somebody a hero. You know, that it's it's the situation of time and place, but then the person rises to the occasion. Yes. And, and they often said, as often... Um, heroic people do that it wasn't anything special to them at the time they just did what needed to be done that was a kind of common thread yes. um, throughout but of course the other thing that is common to all of them which you very clearly 
point out is that they all were in a time and place where racism was extreme um, and that they were, um, it, you know, they were, they, it just, what they had to go through in order to be soldiers was just extraordinary. Well, beyond, way beyond, well, except for perhaps, you know, the fairly famous um, 442nd, the Nisai um, regiment yeah. that, you know, similar kind of thing where the uh, Japanese Americans were formed into a regiment to fight in Europe, but also experienced incredible racism uh, at every turn. Yeah. Um, and it's just, um, you know, it kind of is apropos of the discussion that we're having today about racism in America. Yeah, it, um, it definitely uh, speaks to that. And what I wanted to also bring out in the book is that, yes, of course, you know, we still have racism in America. You know, it's not going away, unfortunately, any day soon. But in the late 1930s and, and the early 1940s, it was pervasive. It was in society. People had no idea how entrenched it was back in that time. And I wanted to bring that out, what these men went through on a day-to-day -day basis with the prejudice of, of just living in this country as a, as a black American. And, uh, well, and, that, and so many of them uh, were trained in um, uh, camps in the South, yes. which I think, you know, there was a, it's noticeable that a lot of the um, training areas in the army were in Louisiana, um, you know, Georgia, yep. uh, North okay. Carolina, places where, I mean, there was space and there were conditions that were good for training, but they were also terrible culturally and socially for those soldiers, some of whom came from parts of the country where they did not experience the level of day-to-day -day racism that was prevalent in the South at that time. Yes. Uh, and one of the, I think one of the stories you talked about was the um, uh, suppressed story about Alexandria, Louisiana. Yeah, the Lee Street riot. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, in 1942, January of 1942, there was a army race riot that was uh, covered up by the military and the local uh, media in Alexandria, Louisiana. And Alexandria is only about 20 minutes away from Camp Claiborne, which is a huge uh, army base where the 101st Airborne began where the 82nd Airborne began, where the 761st Tank Battalion began that uh, Reuben Rivers was in, and the 761st that Rivers was in launched in 1943. And in Alexandria, obviously the year before, less than, about a year before, this race riot happened. So the town was kind of on the ragged edge and very raw not welcoming to uh, black Americans. And uh, the race, race riot was caused by um, uh, some confusion. Uh, a policeman thought that uh, a black soldier had assaulted a, a young white woman that it was never proven. And then, uh, you know, a brawl started and between white and black um, soldiers 
uh, recruits that were training. And of course the cops got involved and started shooting. And um, it was uh, investigated about 15, 20 years ago that there were deaths that, that occurred uh, during this riot. But at the time it was reported that there were no deaths. So it was, uh, it was a cover-up. And, uh, but of course, all the black soldiers all knew what had happened, oh, yeah, all yeah. the soldiers at that base, so that that became a kind of subtext for them of daily experience, that they had to fear just going into town to get a, a drink. Yep, they did. They did. And they stopped going into town after a while because it was so hostile to them. They, they were not welcome at all. <laughs> right, and, and there was this sort of idea entrenched in the military at that time that, you know, black soldiers were not, initially anyway, black soldiers were not given uh, training, nor were they um, assumed to become uh, soldiers on the front line. They were mainly given duties like um, being a cook or being a, you know, a, a mechanic or something. Um, and you talk about that, I think, in, in various of the chapters, but... W what was when was the, when did the change occur that um, that black soldiers really became more involved in uh, combat? Sure, it was out of uh, necessity, uh, basically. Um, uh, Patton put out a call for for tankers, and uh, there was only the seven sixty first, the uh, black tanker unit left. And Patton said, "I didn't ask for color; I asked for tankers." So that kind of started the ball rolling with the, the Black Panthers of the 761st to get into combat. But what really did it was um, Eisenhower in late 1944, after the Battle of the Bulge, um, the attrition of sol white soldiers on the front lines uh, wounded or killed. There weren't any soldiers to replace them. So they had to turn to their black service members who were in service roles, uh, as you say, you know, cooks and engineers and uh, supply, and invite them. They invited them <laughs> through a letter to uh, to participate in combat, and um, they invited them to train. And the response was overwhelming from black soldiers in service roles. They had close to five thousand apply. And uh, there were only slots for about 2,500. So soldiers were enthusiastic to, to train for combat. And that training started um, in January of 1945. So they joined the war late. And it was, um, it was a, a plan that Eisenhower and his advisors came up with to create a fifth platoon as a rifle company as part of another uh, platoon in a white company. So they were commanded by white officers, but it was an all-black platoon, and they called it the 5th Platoon. And um, uh, these pl platoons distinguished themselves. And two of our Medal of Honor recipients were in those 5th Platoons, uh, Sergeant Edward Carter and Willie James Jr. were both part of... Uh, fifth platoons. So, and maybe we should not neglect to talk about the other um, 
services besides the uh, army, um, because I think there were also uh, black soldiers in the Navy. I assume there were black soldiers in the Air Force, but of course, I don't think that apply. You know, there, none of them were mem- uh, were um, awarded the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, so they're not the subject of your book. But um, right. you know, how what was the situation in the other branches? In the other service branches, um, from talking with other historians, uh, John McManus in particular, author of a lot of he has a current book on the Pacific War. Um, there wasn't a need for personnel uh, in the Pacific War to to go on the front lines. So black sailors, uh, I'm not sure about airmen, but black sailors didn't have the opportunity to really uh, serve in combat roles, to my knowledge. And there is one black sailor that's under consideration now from World War II for the Medal of Honor. And he was a messmate, third class. His name was Dory Miller. And um, the reason he's under consideration for the Medal of Honor is because he manned a gun during the Pearl Harbor attack after um, the, uh, the men manning it were wounded and killed. And he came up on deck and just, he didn't know how to operate the, the 50 caliber gun, but <laughs> he did. And it was estimated he shot down three to four Japanese planes that were coming in towards his ship in West Virginia. But he wasn't a co- in a combat role. He worked in the kitchen. <laughs> right. So, but, so he's, being under, he's under consideration for the Medal of Honor right now. There's an online petition. Right. And you mentioned those two guys in, your, in the epilogue, I think it was, the Waverly, Woodson, and Dory Miller. Right. Are there not more... Uh, black soldiers who might be qualified for the uh, Medal of Honor and who might, whose whose cases might be um, raised at some later time, or do you really think that this is the um, the number that there will be uh, for World War II? Um, there were yes. The study at Shaw University um, discovered, I, I believe, it's um, ten black soldiers who were deserving of the Medal of Honor, who received the, the DSC. And uh, one of those men is Jack Thomas. So I think it's possible that they may be reexamined, those cases, because the, the two or three others, maybe, it is, maybe it's nine uh, total, and seven were awarded. So there are two more. But yes, I do, I do think that they will eventually receive their recognition because the number is so small compared to the number of African-Americans that served right. in World War II. It's just, I mean, it's remarkable how well you were able to, I mean, how much information you were able to collect. Um, you know, now it's even 75 years or 80 years ago since they were, I mean, most of them were born in the late teens, early twenties. Right. Um, you know, that's a long time ago. I know from like, look, when I try to do research about my family, you know, and just trying to find people who know something or have records, it's really hard. Um, and you really learned, you went and interviewed a lot of people. You learned a lot about these, yeah. uh, the lives of these, these guys and, you know, where they lived and who they were married to, who they, I, and who their children were. Yep. Um, and what was it like talking to all those people? Well, the, the families, the descendants were very, very helpful and very supportive of the book. And um, 
Aline Carter served as a as the ambassador for the other families. But I spoke to uh, Sandra Fox, who was uh, John Fox's daughter, and Sandra Holiday, the niece of uh, Charles Thomas, and um, and other folks. And uh, but what really helped me in my research was actually Ancestry.com. I was able to look up censuses and uh, the towns they lived in, where they lived, who was living in the house at the time, how much they were making. That was an invaluable resource to, uh, you know, to ground the, the research there, in fact. <laughs> well, it was great. I, I thought you really did a good job of kind of humanizing them, not just treating them as um, figures in battle, you know, that they were human beings and that they had lives preceding, I mean, admittedly short lives for those who passed away during the war because they were young, but um, they had real, um, real lives. And it's, I think it's hard sometimes when we think about people in the past who are, you know, we're looking at them for what they did. So there's a, the focus is on, um, action. And of course the war stories kind of are really loom large, but I think it's really important to know them as people. And, and that's really hard to do. It is. And that was my goal with the book and it wasn't easy. I think that's why no, no other book had been done on their lives before because it was such a daunting objective. And, uh, but that was my goal. I wanted to raise the bar and, and bring out these men's lives because online, all you could find is the Medal of Honor citations. Right. And you didn't, you didn't know who they were. Right. Well, I, and I think I mentioned to you before we started that I have some experience lately in that kind of material because of my friend whose uh, family member was a, um, uh, a hero in World War One, and looking at the research that and the material that they've gathered, and of course they have the advantage that his daughter, amazingly, is still alive and now in her nineties, has firsthand knowledge of him and what his life was like, um, and they have right. family photos and that you know they have his military patches and I mean stuff that is really um, brings him to life. You know, I I've sort of gotten to know who that guy was. Uh, from them, but it's still, um, it's, it's just amazing to think about, um, it is what happened. And, and of course, then these battles, these, um, the, where they won, where they did the heroic work Mm -hmm. happened in a really short period of time, you know, it's sort of this compressed moment where everything was happening at once, but it was probably in some cases, minutes and seconds that they had to make decisions and did something that saved lives or uh, turned the tide in a battle. Um, and yes. all of that led to by their, who they were, you know, what they, who they were as people, how they learned probably at some earlier stage, you know, how to be a person and then just react in that way. Yeah. They all rose to the challenge and didn't question it. That's inspiring to, uh, yeah. to everybody, you know, how they could act in that kind of situation where, right. I mean, and it, it doesn't have to be war that we think of, nope. uh, you know, that, um, it's in that moment when something is happening and you simply do what needs to be done as they said, um, 
but you wonder about yourself. You can't help it. And when you read these stories, um, thinking about, well, what would I have done? You know, wh- how right. would I have been? And you mentioned, I think, I, I think it was in the, was it, I can't, it was the story that involves David Williams, mm-hmm. um, who was yeah. the white Lieutenant, um, where one of the captains kind of had a, had a breakdown, um, and just couldn't do what he was supposed to do. He was like, um, uh, just having a breakdown. He couldn't function in, in time of crisis. And then you kind of contrast that with these, you know, lower ranking enlisted men, sergeants, corporals who did the actual fighting comparatively. I mean, it's just unbelievable to think about the difference, you know, like there goes one person who can't handle it at all and basically melts down. And then somebody else does the heroic work that is required to save lives. It's just, um, you know, kind of stunning to compare those two responses. Yeah. That was the, the captain in charge of, uh, Vernon Baker's company who, um, was put, who was the white, um, captain who had never commanded or spent a second in combat. And, uh, yet he was leading, you know, Baker's platoon storming a, a German position and he just lost it. Yeah. He just folded and he retreated. He decided to retreat and he left the men behind. (laughs) It's just unbelievable. And then, you know, how does that person live with himself going forward? You know, what happens to him later? You, you just wonder, you know, these are sort of, uh, it's like Greek tragedy, um, in, you know, in real life. Um, but you also recognize that that was a person who had a family, who had a life, who had to deal with whatever happened. It's not that they're bad people. They just were not able to achieve what, you know, the fullness of their, um, uh, require what was required of them. Yeah. Yeah. He was not experienced for what the situation called for. Um, but he did add insult to injury. Because when when he got back to headquarters, when he retreated and left Vernon Baker's platoon behind uh, under enemy fire, he said that they had all been wiped out, and there was no need to send reinforcements up to save or or support the men. You know, as you kind of look at back at this work that you did with um, the research and the and kind of getting involved in the lives of these people. Um, how do you feel like, I mean, you, and you sort of alluded to this, that, um, you know, things have certainly changed for the better since 1940 or 1945. Uh, and when, you know, the soldiers came home from world war II, they changed the America in a big way. What had happened during world war II, the social interaction of different people from all over the country had a massive effect, uh, and the changes in the social fabric and, you know, all led gradually, I think, toward big changes that occurred uh, in the 50s and 60s. It was not simple and it was not smooth. Um, and while things are better, um, you know, you still hear stories about racism in the military, just as there is racism in other parts of our society. Um, but do you, you know, do you talk to contemporary soldiers um, about what their experiences are like today? Um, I, I... 
in the research for this book, I didn't talk to um, soldiers today. I've just heard anecdotally that um, there are isolated incidents of, you know, of racism still in the military, but, you know, nothing like it was, obviously, back in the 1940s. We've come so, much, course, so far. Right. And we, we have um, a much more diverse command yes. um, structure, and that makes a big difference, too, I think. Um, yeah. And so it, it just in general, like what has been the percentage of uh, Medal of Honor awardees, you know, per, sort of per number of soldiers in the army as, or in whatever branch of service it is, is, I mean, it's a fairly small number. It's a always not a large number of medal winners for any particular campaign. Is that correct? That's true. And um, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but the total number of medals of honor for all the wars since the uh, medal was first awarded in the Civil Wars is just under 3,500. So it's a really small and number. That's, that's a small number. Yeah. And, you know, when you consider there are millions in uniform. Um, so that's why it's so coveted. That's why it's so um, tough to uh, be awarded the medal because, you you know, it's a rigorous vetting process as well well it's it is remarkable um when you think about um the heroicism uh the heroic feat i mean it's just sort of of normal people doing um kind of these special things i think it's really it's a remarkable collection and i think it really um is a really important book i hope that it it becomes um widely read because i think it's important i hope so too you know it's it's a, these are all really important stories and they reflect who we are as a as a society in uh in so many ways yeah i i couldn't agree more i it's it's a book that isn't just for you know a military aficionado or you know enthusiast it's it's a broad it's a book that has a broad um audience um, that can get something from it. And that's what I, I tell people, you know, whoever you are, you, you'll get something from this book. Oh, I agree with that. And if you, yeah. And I think also the, the word, the title is really important too, that it's valor. Um, you know, valor is a really, um, uh, underappreciated, uh, character trait, I think. And, um, it's, it, you know, when we see it, it's really, it makes us recognize the strength of human beings. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny, the word valor, in my, um, during the writing, I would use different spell checkers and um, grammar checkers and things like that. And they would always flag the word valor. And it was because they would suggest, don't you want to use a more modern term? <laughs> it's like, no, I don't want to use a more modern term. There's no right. word that can replace valor. Right. And but it is uh, understandably in a way that it, because of its history and where it comes from, it is a, a kind of, but, but it's a constant. That's the thing about language. That's really important that there are certain values that you really, 
that 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 are core values they they don't change and the the yes. the word it remains because it's so uh descriptive and so important and uh you know i appreciate that you used it <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> well thanks for doing this it's really been a pleasure talking to you robert um about Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor winners of World War II, denied recognition for 50 years. It's a terrific book. And I want to thank you for appearing on Writer's Cast uh, today. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. 